Good evening all to the 88th session of the weekly huddle. I am Anup and joining me today is my friend and co-host Praneet. We are cardiologists working at care hospitals. Uh, most of you know the format of the weekly huddle. So we are just gonna get to our today's discussion. Just that once a while uh, in our discussion, uh, we pick up a clinical topic and then sometimes we pick up a clinical case, understanding that topics are a little bit more streamlined versus cases are something where we need to discuss about that particular case rather than topic in general. So today we will be discussing a clinical case that will, um, what you call that will cover a lot of topics that uh, we do have to make decisions in our day-to-day -day clinical practice. Uh, but we'll try to reserve our discussion around this particular clinical case why we'll try to cover the topics which are part of uh, today's case discussion. So having said that, I'll start this clinical case. And once I'm done, I will uh, ask uh, my co-host Praneet to give his initial impression. And then we will take opinion from our attendees as well. Uh, as always, if you do have any questions or if you do want to add anything, you can either raise your hand or you can post it in the chat box and I will bring it up for discussion. So the case for today goes as follows. It's a 52 year old male. I actually saw him in the OPD today itself. This guy, and I'm seeing him for the first time. This guy underwent PTCA to mid LAD around four years back. So at that time he was 48 years of age. And that time the PTCA was done because of uh, non-ST elevation MI. I looked, I looked into his previous uh, records. And at that time he presented with uh, uh, chest discomfort. Uh, his uh, ECG showed uh, some non-specific changes. Echo was normal. His troponin was uh, significantly positive. So he underwent an angiogram, which showed uh, uh, almost uh, subcritical stenosis of the mid LAD which uh, underwent uh, uh, uneventful uh, stenting followed by a two-day hospital stay. He was discharged since then and he had been doing all right. So that was around four years ago. He was under regular follow-up for about two years. And in the last two years, uh, he calls it for COVID, but uh, in the last two years, he has not seen any uh, cardiologist or any general physician for his uh, medical issue. Although he did continue taking the medications which were prescribed to him last, that was around two years ago. He's a non-diabetic. His cholesterol levels were slightly elevated uh, earlier. And as I said, in the last two years, he has not got it checked. He used to smoke before his stenting procedure, which uh, he claims that after his PCI, he has stopped uh, smoking. So his today's visit was a pretty much routine follow-up. He didn't have any complaints. He just said, it's been such a long time and uh, I have not uh, taken any medical opinion. So now here I am. And he actually came to me with a lot of uh, investigations. He probably got like a package or something done. So he just came, came to me with a lot of such investigations. He didn't have any complaints. Uh, the blood pressure that I got in the emergency uh, in my OPD was uh, 104 over 68 with a heart rate of 66. His physical exam was uh, non-remarkable. In his basic workup, I'll just give you a brief summary. And then if you have any particular questions, I can answer that. His hemogram and renal parameters, including electrolytes, were all normal. His ECG and echo were also normal. 
His lipid profile showed a total cholesterol of 146, HDL of 42, LDL of 62, and a triglyceride of 99. All these numbers I have posted on the WhatsApp group in case if you want to review that. His HbA1c was 5.9. Those were most of the uh, labs that he got when he came to see me. His current medications include, and I'm going to use brand names because I want to tell you exactly what he was taking. So he was taking Rosuva Gold, which is a combination tablet of uh, Rosuva statin 20 milligrams, uh, aspirin 75 milligrams, and clopidogrel 75 milligrams. He's taking Metosartan, which is a combination of metoprolol and telmisartan, of 50 milligrams of metoprolol and 40 milligrams of telmisartan that he takes once a day. He takes Nicorandil, five milligrams twice daily. So these are three medications that three tablets that he's on. Uh, two of them are uh, fixed dose combinations. So that is the current medication he's taking, asymptomatic labs I told, told you. And while this case would have been otherwise a simple case, I chose this to discuss few things which often come to our uh, cardiology attention. So the discussion points are as follows, how to rationalize treatment regimen for this patient. He's taking these medications for him. He just takes four tablets. He's doing fine. He doesn't have any active complaints. Uh, how do we rationalize treatment regimen for this particular patient? And how do we define the role of dual antiplatelet in long-term management of chronic coronary syndrome? And I say long-term management, particularly in these kind of cases, we can even say remote management because he had a uh, coronary event around four years ago. And since then he had been doing reasonably okay. Then long-term management of uh, long-term role of using beta blockers, ARB, uh, nicorandil, and all this in this patient subset. And then lastly, this is a question more for us. Can drug regimen in these kind of patient subset be safely de-escalated without paying any price in terms of any cardiovascular event and whatnot? Sometimes patients ask us this question that can we reduce the medications? But I believe at times we should be asking ourselves this question as well, that are these medications even needed? And then if there is any uh, error of uh, omission, which means if there is any medication that he should be on, which we have not put him on. So uh, Praneet, how would you take up this case in terms of his medication regimen? How is he doing overall? Do you want to do any other investigations to help you make a decision? And uh, answer the questions regarding dual antiplatelet, beta blocker, ARB, nicorandil, and what not in this particular case. Praneet. Yeah, good evening, everyone. So this patient, I'll look at as a patient who had a coronary event when he was in his late 40s, uh, at 48 years of age, smoker, uh, and he had um, non-ST elevation MI. So I will uh, consider this patient as someone who has um, high risk of uh, ASCVD. Uh, probably more contributing by his smoking, but still I would consider him as high risk. And uh, he underwent angioplasty and he is receiving the all the drugs that I want him to take, the dual antiplatelet therapy, uh, high moderate to high intensity statin, beta blocker and then uh, RAS blockade that is an ARB. Nicorandil is also there as an anti-angelin. So he is receiving all the drugs for his um, ASCBD. Now, four years down the lane, uh, uh, down the line, uh, when he comes to follow up, when he's apparently stable, I am actually happy with what he's doing up, where he quit his smoking. His numbers look okay. Rates are fine. Blood pressures are fine. 
ecg equal good and his lipids are also good not diabetic now uh, first day i would be uh, impressed by this uh, patient that he is taking good care of himself now going forward what would uh, i do to change his medication because i believe he is not having any angina and he is able to carry on his activities uh, i don't think he there is any role for him to receive antianginal nicorandel and uh, so i would try to stop and also we discussed in our last session about the role of nicorandel in various uh, issues from oral ulcers to ulcerations gi tract but equally i don't find any indication to continue nicorandel in him so first i would stop this thing now regarding dual antiplatelet therapy the way i look at is uh, whether the patient has any risk of bleeding versus the risk of ischemia being 52 years of age i look at him as a low risk of bleeding unless he has any issues or is there any problem i would be still okay continuing his dual antiplatelet therapy understanding he will be equally okay uh, with single antiplatelet therapy the major challenge will be in terms of pill burden and if all these things is combining with a single pill and patient is compliant and comfortable i would um, be okay continuing dual antiplatelet therapy statins uh, high intensity statin for him again because he i consider him as a high risk patient and now that his ldl cholesterol is 62 on 20 mg of rosuva statin uh, the targets that we have to look into is having an ldl of 55 or less this patient is having 62 so reasonably okay so i would be still okay to continue him on 20 mg of uh, rosuva statin so this uh, triple drug combination of dual antiplatelet therapy and statin i would still advise him to continue the same regarding uh, metoprolol and telmisartan combination pressures are fine and he is doing okay um the i would be again uh, okay to continue this thing role of beta blockers on long term unless he does not have any lv dysfunction no angina no heart failure role of beta blockers is of question but when he is doing okay uh, i have going will be okay to continue the metoprolol and delmisartan combination if there are any side effects associated with beta blockers in terms of easy fatigability impotence or any other issues then i would probably consider equally personally i am a bit hesitant uh, or lack confidence in weaning beta blockers because of the uh, risk of rebound hypertension and probably precipitating angina so personally i would continue both of them so for this patient i would stop nicorandel continue rosuva gold once and uh, metoprolol once daily one one two tablets a day probably will be okay and uh, deescalating uh, in a otherwise stable patient uh, i would be a bit hesitant in deescalating because whatever regimen which was making him stable unless he has any issues associated with it i would still be okay continuing them unless there is any strong reason for me to deescalate that is my take on this patient hello anit any investigation at this point that we did not do that you would like to do not that i can think of i think uh, that is the basic lab work that i would also order nothing that comes to my mind at this point of time 
And just so that we finish this discussion, although we are not talking about this today, but would you do any stress test on him? No. Okay, perfect. All right. Uh, the floor is open for discussion. If anybody has got any thoughts, please share. I will be uh, asking my attendees uh, about their opinion. And uh, as I'm going through the list, uh, I'm just going to pick up a few names. Let's see. Uh, Praveen is here with us. Dr. Praveen, if you can hear me, could you please unmute yourself and share what will you do with this patient? Uh, good evening, everyone. Uh, sir, uh, regarding this case, uh, as the patient is stable and all that, uh, I would be uh, continuing the uh, drug, sir, the Rosewa Gold and all that. If we want to stop any of the drugs, the first one would be an Icorandis. And the next one, I would uh, concentrate in the follow-up of this patient, I would be seeing regarding the HbA1c. And if HbA1c is of slightly altered, and then I would be uh, decreasing the dosage of uh, metoprolol to 25 mg or even stopping it. Uh, if there is any LV function is fine, then uh, the de-escalating of the beta blocker would be fine. Why? Because this patient, he is a non-diabetic and uh, a long-term uh, beta blocker of uh, 50 mg can uh, uh, cause uh, the what you call they can increase the risk of diabetes. Uh, in follow-up, I would be following with the HbA1c because it is 5.9 for him. If it is on the increasing trend, and then I would uh, consider stopping the metoprolol or decreasing the metoprolol. Uh, rest of the drugs, if patient is compliant, I would be continuing. Sir. So first would be necrondil and then uh, decreasing the beta blockage. So my question, Praveen, to you is if you are worried about beta blocker, why not stop it now? Why to wait for A1C to go up? Sir, uh, uh, what you call, uh, it might not be seen in all the patients, no, sir. <clears throat> Right, it won't, be, it, it won't be seen in all the patient. That is correct. That is absolutely correct. For, some, for the same reason, uh, and at that time, uh, the benefit would be more than that of the harm. Now. So, and if the same patient has been controlled on uh, uh, what you call continued on beta blockers, and his HbA1c is increasing, then uh, the what you call the uh, purpose of uh, stopping the other drugs or continuing him on a single antiplatelet would not be making sense. Why? Because this patient profile will be changing. He is a diabetic now. So he will be uh, falling into a high risk category compared to that of when he is now. Perfect. Thank you, Praveen. We are going to discuss all of this. I'm going to take more opinion from uh, my attendees. We have Dr. Prashant here with us. Prashant, if you can hear me, could you please unmute yourself and share your thoughts? Prashant, if you can hear me. Dr. Shankar, if this patient were to come to you, let's say, after two years of uh, lost follow-up, and if you were to be making decisions for this patient, how would you approach this case? Uh, good evening to all. Looking at the history, we can say that this is a a case of a chronic uh, stable ischemic heart disease, uh, coronary artery disease. Now it is defined as a chronic coronary syndrome, CCS. So uh, more than four years passed uh, post uh, MI and PTCA. 
so we have to give uh, antiplatelet agents in this case we have to continue so already for, for first one year we give aspirin plus p2y12 inhibitors and after that we'll decide looking at the dap score and the precise dap score whether this dap can be extended or not looking at this case is the dap score is more than 2 so he definitely needed a long dap and that to more than 3 years we can give so now is a remote case as already alluded to so the lifelong antiplatelet agent here i prefer to give only aspirin alone uh, rather than combining dual antiplatelet agents because already more than 4 years without uh, uh, any symptoms of angina so regarding the antiplatelet agents i will go for only single antiplatelet agent in this case because more than 4 years without uh, any symptoms and second thing i will go for uh, statins statins uh, is a uh, here his uh, ldl is uh, ldl is uh, how much sir 62 62 so ldl is uh, 62 so according to the esc or accah guidelines or even in indian uh, Uh, LAI in this Lipid Association of India guidelines, so he comes under a very high risk group because already established uh, as CVD is there. He he had myocardial infarction and he underwent to PTC and all. So established as CVD, uh, so he he comes under very high risk group where is a target LDL should be less than fifty five or. 50 according to indian guidelines if it is less than 50 also it will be very better uh, it will be better uh, so here is ldl is 62 nearing that but uh, still if you want to strictly follow the guideline directed the medical therapy then uh, rule of 6 i we go if you increase the dosage of uh, rosvastatin from 10 to 20 only 6% of uh, uh, reduction will be there in the ldl so i increase the rosvastatin uh, from 10 to 20 single antiplatelet agent and rosvastatin 20 mg uh, so that uh, we'll get uh, the uh, target uh, level of uh, ldl and regarding the the beta blockers uh, they are uh, highly effective in the reduction of uh, uh, symptoms of angina also and uh, development of the myocardial ischemia in the even in the stable patients and it is efficacious and beneficial especially in patients with uh, myocardial infarction so and here the heart rate is also more than 60 beats per minute so i continue beta blocker Uh, even 50 milligrams also uh, the chances of diabetes is remote in this case because his a1c is still 5.9 and uh, then the beta blocker has to be continued 
since he is hypertensive hypertensive the arb that is uh, tell me satan uh, it will be continued so uh, i will stop uh, uh, i will strictly ask him to stop smoking uh, because uh, he was uh, earlier ex smoker so we at any time he should not uh, go for uh, smoking and uh, nicorandil there is no uh, because the patient is not having any symptoms of angina and nicorandil has got no role at all here so nicorandil can be uh, because uh, uh nicorandil carries some side effects also as in adult alluded to uh, so nicorandil i will drop it here uh, only single antiplatelet agent rosvastatin i will increase it to 10 from 20 uh, then beta blocker i will continue and uh, arb uh, the telmisartan will be continued and will stop uh, nicorandil in this case thank you so much sir we will continue our discussion and uh, before i invite uh, uh, dr vijay reddy for his thought process i will just share with you the rationale of why i chose that this otherwise seemingly a regular case was worth discussing for an hour on this uh, forum so with this case i have actually brought in lot of questions the question number 1 of dual antiplatelet agent now back in the day when we discussed dual antiplatelet agent in the research trials we discussed uh, we put in a binary number as one year so we said less than one year versus more than one year and then truly speaking if you go back in the research in the last i believe 7 8 years there had been two parallel researches going on two parallel set of research is going on one research that is trying to reduce the duration of dual antiplatelet as much as possible and most of those research using the newer generation stents they do come in favor of shortening the dual antiplatelet uh, duration and then at the same time there has been uh, research data with prolonging the dual antiplatelet the most famous being dapt trial and uh, that also favors uh, prolonging the dual antiplatelet therapy so now it's almost like no matter how you test it the the hypothesis for which the research is done that hypothesis proves correct no matter which way you test it what we have learned over the period of time is it is okay to continue dual antiplatelet for a longer period of time provided you think that the ischemic burden is high provided you think that the ischemic risk is high and the bleeding risk is low while there is some subjectivity to calculating this risk actually the guidelines give us some objective criteria to define uh, whether those uh, risks uh, can be uh, calculated or not but remember one thing all these things they are done when we say more than one year what do we mean more than one year do we mean two years do we mean three years do we mean four years five years 10 years i don't think research can ever answer this question so while we are talking about year 1 through year 2 or maybe year 3 there is some data to help us but what do we do on year 4 year 5 year 10 i don't think we have that kind of data set to guide us our therapy and that is where our uh, thought process and our understanding is going to work in these cases 
Um, the issue behind dual antiplatelet that I was told when I came to India a few years ago, and I asked my colleagues that why do we overprescribe dual antiplatelet at that time? I thought that we overprescribe. I still think we do. And also, why do we favor uh, single dose aspirin when we do of 150 milligram versus 75 milligrams, which is what is recommended worldwide? And the answer that I got, very pragmatic answer, may not stand the test of time, but the pragmatic answer I got was that Anoop in India with the quality control, if you are prescribing 75 milligrams of aspirin to a patient, you don't know whether the tablet contains 75 or whether the tablet contains 37. We have no idea. So when we give 150, we know at least the patient is getting anywhere from 75 to 150 milligrams. So we tend to err on the side of giving a little bit more than a little bit less. And the same thing goes for dual antiplatelet as well, that if you are giving two antiplatelet agent, then you know for sure that you are giving at least one antiplatelet agent, even if the drug quality is a little bit compromised. Now that's a little bit more pragmatic way of looking at in the Indian context, whether that is correct or not, I don't know. Whether we should be putting that kind of judgment or not, I don't know. So if this question was being discussed in a heavily regulated uh, pharmaceutical market where quality control is taken care of, in those situations after four years giving dual antiplatelet agent, I don't think there is any data that can support us to go either for or against. The scoring system like DAPT and whatnot, all of these are tested for the short term. Short term means after year one to maybe year two, maybe year three. But whether they apply to year four, five, six, ten, I don't know. These things, these things are just not clear. Uh, that is where I think uh, discussion becomes important. Having said that, the, the idea of risk profiling this patient, Pranit said and Shankar sir said that they would categorize this patient as high risk. I don't know. I don't, I wouldn't categorize this patient as high risk. And I am going by some of the criteria that has been defined by the guidelines where uh, there are actually some objective criteria to say what, what you will use to consider this patient as a high risk. Certainly an active smoker is a high risk, but once the patient quits smoking, how long it takes before this patient's uh, baseline cardiovascular risk becomes similar to age-matched non-smoking peers? Uh, what time do you take? Do you take six months? Do you take one year? Do you take five years? Do you take 10 years? I don't know. There are some data point, again, hinting the same thing that once you quit smoking, after how many years you can be considered at a similar risk profile as your age matched peers who are non-smokers? Uh, how, what will that, that uh, time be? I personally consider that as one year because I have read it in certain places. Uh, I don't think there will ever be any data set regarding it. So from my thought process, if a person has quit smoking four years ago, then from the cardiovascular risk standpoint, at this time, he is at the same risk as his non-smoking peers. That is my comprehension. Again, not based upon data set. The reason why I think uh, the drugs that needs uh, discussion for Nicorandil, I think the consensus is pretty clear. But beta blocker also, about a decade ago, there was a discussion about... Uh, what is the expiry period of beta blocker post MI in an otherwise stable patient who does not have heart failure? And there was a lot of debate about what that expiry period is. A consensus statement was released a few years ago that three years is probably a good time 
after which we should actively stop beta blocker unless there is an indication which is ongoing angina or heart failure or arrhythmia or something of that sort. Again, these are consensus. We don't know. We have no idea about uh, how the beta blocker thing, thing works. But I, I think that continuing beta blocker for long period of time, we know not only with diabetes, beta blocker has effects in its metabolic parameters as well. Uh, beat your cholesterol profile, beat your overall metabolism, beat your diabetes. Beta blockers are not a long-term healthy drug as to speak. In fact, uh, two decades ago, one and a half decade ago, uh, when hypertension was studied with beta blocker in one arm and calcium channel blocker with another arm, then there was actually higher mortality in beta blocker arm, understanding that was a hypertension arm, not a coronary uh, disease arm. And the same thing that goes for ARBs as well. This patient's systolic pressure in my OPD is 106. At home, I don't expect his blood pressure to be more than 130, 140. And if we go by the hypertension data that has come so far, what we do know is when we start driving blood pressure below a certain limit, in the sprint trial, that number was 130. There are many other trials where it has been, a signal has been given that as we drive pressures low and low, it certainly reduces the cardiovascular and cerebrovascular events. Uh, the quantum of reduction is not much, but it certainly reduces. But it, it comes at a cost of higher incidence of CKD in these patients. Uh, as you all know that kidneys require a little bit extra perfusion pressure as compared to heart and brain. So there is certainly an inflection point if you drop blood pressure beyond that over a long period of time, unless you have an active reason like heart failure or whatnot, then these drugs, they may not be very benign. You may actually end up with these patients, more proportion of them developing uh, nephropathy and whatnot may not be a very overt nephropathy, but uh, they may develop, uh, they may tend to be on a path of early CKD uh, than a person who maintains their blood pressure at around 120, 30 or so. So that is particularly the reason why I thought all these things, they are very important. Same thing is for statin as well. Uh, because I thought this patient is not at the highest risk, I would have put him an LDL target of 70, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't refute if somebody says my LDL target is 55 for this patient. Uh, we all know that for LDL, the whole idea of too low causing cerebrovascular events, that is not true now. You can actually drive LDL as low as possible. And if this patient is in stabilized on rosuvastatin of 20 milligrams, might well be, um, but... Uh, 62, in my opinion, was a very good number for him. And if somebody would have decided to bring down his rosuvastatin from 20 to 10, that also probably would not have been a, uh, a bad option in a uh, bad decision in my option. And remember, statin on the long run, again, has been implicated with uh, uh, diabetes risk. And uh, I have heard multiple seniors saying in India, again, there is no way to verify that what statin dose, which has been standardized in the Western world, whether that is the same standardization we can use in Indian subset, that also is a debate. That also is a question for which we don't have an answer to. So whether 20 milligrams of rosuvastatin in a Caucasian male equates 20 milligrams of rosuvastatin in Indian male, that also we don't know. I'm talking more in terms of the metabolic derangement. So I thought there were enough reasons for me to discuss about medical therapy in these patients for long-term, because at some point, it is possible that our therapy itself are causing more problem 
than actually bene benefiting patient. So that was my about six minutes rant of why I thought this case was relevant for me to discuss. Uh, I'll continue my discussion. I'll ask Dr. Vijay Reddy for his opinion on this particular case. Vijay, sir. Good evening, Anup, and uh, good evening, everybody. My thoughts on this patient, this is a 40-year-old man presented with instamine. Now he is having stable CAD. So down the line, he is uh, he receiving dual antiplatelet drugs for the last four years, which is unwarranted. Usually DAP is recommended only for one year. And beyond that, uh, beyond one year, up to three years, it can be recommended with uh, high ischemic resist. That, uh, that too is ticagraral 60 milligrams, not with clopidogrel as, as proved in Pegasus trial. That is number one. So I will I will straight away remove this clopidogrel and start only aspirin. That is number one. And uh, you you told about the, the this thing smoking. When the patient stops smoking after two years, he will become the the risk become non-smoker levels only after two years. That is number two. Then number three, lifelong. There is only one indication for lifelong DAP. That is brachytherapy in a patient with instant stenosis. Here we have to give lifelong DAP. That is thing. Regarding rose, uh, regarding beta blocker, the idea when the patient is having normal LV function, the ideal duration is up to three years. Afterwards, there is no need for any beta blocker. Patient is not hypertension and uh, LV function is normal. So his uh, hemodynamics are also borderline. He's having 106 by 66, no need of helmisartan also. Regarding rosvastatin, I would still prefer to give 40 milligrams. Though the, uh, the recommended dose, uh, I mean, uh, is, uh, he's achieved uh, LDL of 62 with uh, 20 milligrams because why I am recommending 40 milligrams of rosvastatin because they, he is a Indian, but is a um, South Asian, is a high risk ethnicity. So I I want to be his LDL less than 55. That is number one. Number four, Nicorandil straight away I will uh, strike down my in my prescription. So my order of preference is Ecosperin, the 75 milligrams, Rosvastatin, 40 milligrams, and no beta blocker, no Telmisartan no recondyl, no recondyl, and my target of LDL should be less than 55 with lifestyle modification. Over to Anup. Sir, one question before I let you go. If you choose single antiplatelet in this patient, why aspirin, why not clopidogrel? Aspirin, aspirin usually um, the, in India, we are having non-responders up to 30% with the clopidogrel. And we are not doing any genetic uh, this thing for this clopidogrel. So I prefer to use ecosperin rather than clopidogrel. We don't know the incidence of uh, the clopidogrel non-responsiveness. Non, non Thank you, sir. I, I concur with you regarding the choice of aspirin versus clopidogrel. In fact, that also had been a significant discussion in the past that which agent we should choose as a single agent where we know that aspirin at times is implicated in higher incidence of GI bleed in all these research trials uh, where people have actually started saying that aspirin may be the biggest uh, 
uh, villain as compared to the other drugs that we're talking about. Uh, but uh, I, I concur with you that whenever we are putting these patients on single antiplatelet, and if that person ends up being a non-responder to clopidogrel, then now that person will be on no antiplatelet as compared to when we are doing a dual antiplatelet, even if the person is non-responder to clopidogrel, at least he's getting some aspirin, so he's getting some benefit. So I concur with you, whenever I choose a single antiplatelet, I always prefer aspirin, unless there is a documented history of GI bleed or peptic ulcer disease, or a patient uh, proves to be intolerant to aspirin, in which case I go to clopidogrel as a single agent. So, and uh, and we, we are not doing routinely brachytherapy for uh, instance stenosis, so there is no need for a lifelong uh, we got a better better ways of managing instant stenosis. Earlier, brachytherapy is very common in our scenario, and we have to use lifelong DAPT. Right. The other, other setup, I think, where dual antiplatelet in the current context are, are kind of recommended, uh, other than the obvious very high-risk subset, which means patient who had more than one MI or patient who had an MI while taking antiplatelet, or patient who had a multivessel PCI, who had a left main PCI, or a complicated bifurcation PCI, all those kind of things. Uh, one, one of the other patient subset which, one, which uh, we may see are those patients who got uh, absorbed biovascular scaffold back in the day. Because we know that biovascular scaffold, the first generation one that, that were used in India, they tend to have higher incidence of stent thrombosis going all the way up to three years. So in these kind of patients, uh, even beyond three years, one would argue that uh, uh, giving dual antiplatelet therapy may be the right thing to do. The only exception would be in those cases where there is a proper angiographic and imaging evidence to say that the, bio, uh, that the scaffold has been completely absorbed and that there is no residual major disease that we are dealing with. So this, I believe, from the cardiology standpoint is more technical. But all the non-cardiologists who are practicing, if you do, do see patients who received absorbed in the past, then uh, it may be a good idea to continue the dual antiplatelet or at least ask uh, your friend cardiologist uh, in terms of whether it should be continued or not. So the floor is open for discussion. If anybody has got any questions, comments, anything to add, you can raise your hand or unmute yourself while I read some of the uh, queries or comments which have been put on the chat box. So one of the query, one of the comment is 15 years is what, after which the risk of CVD is same as normal person without risk factors. Praveen, if it is 15 years, then uh, I, I stand corrected. I, I thought, I always used to think that after one year, you are back to where you started as far as CVD risk is concerned. Uh, if you don't mind, if you could please share that uh, in the WhatsApp group so that we all can read through, through that. Uh, yes, the sir, other question, yeah, Praveen, sorry. Yes, sir, I will be sharing you, sir. Actually, it is okay. for one, uh, that is what you call the, uh, if any of the smoker has uh, what you call quit, uh, quit smoking, at one year, the uh, risk will be decreasing by 33% and uh, that is one third. And uh, then the after 15 years only, it will be becoming the, that of the uh, patient without any risk factors. I will be sharing, sir. Perfect. Thank you so much, Praveen. And Gauri, ma'am, we'll come to you. I'm just reading some of the uh, questions on the chat box, and then I'll come to you. And then Shankar, sir, I'll come to you after that. 
The other question is how long one should give beta blocker in completely revascularized and STEMI with good LV function? Santosh, I think this was briefly discussed. And these are all opinion. I don't think there is strict guidelines. My opinion is three years. Uh, remember, these are the patients who should not have heart failure, who should not have breakthrough angina, who should not have any arrhythmias or anything for which beta blocker is recommended. Remember beta blocker as the growing age in males are hugely implicated in um, um, genitourinary obstruction symptoms as well. So I think beta blockers, when we look into the adverse risk profile, while we are very comfortable prescribing these medications, particularly in males age 50 and above, uh, it can start causing problem if we don't have proper indication. One question that Praveen asks is how comfortable is it to give the fixed dose combination versus individual drug? Praveen, this is a question that uh, has been asked multiple times. I wanted to actually do a hurdle program on it. I have no idea about this. In fact, the very first session, the very first 10 sessions of hurdle, we actually had uh, a very special guest in our hurdle called uh, Dinesh Thakur. He was a whistleblower in the famous Rambaxi case. And uh, he was there and we had Dr. Harry from Cleveland Clinic, where we discussed about the quality control. And there we, we briefly touched upon fixed uh, dose combination or FDC. And uh, the overall opinion of these guys who have been into quality control for quite some time, uh, their overall opinion was that uh, the FDC are literally just uh, a toss of a coin. You absolutely have no idea how much drug is in there. And that is the reason why in patients who are fresh out of acute MI or stent, I typically tend to give them individual drugs for the first three months or six months before I switch them to FDC because uh, the comfort level with FDC is a little less. Uh, most of my colleagues also share a similar thought, although they may be switching maybe not after six months, maybe after one year, some of my colleagues switch after a month but, but the discomfort is there. I don't, uh, I don't deny that. And I'm pretty sure most of my colleagues, they share a similar discomfort. Santosh asks, do we calculate DAP score beyond 30 months? Prane, uh, Santosh, we answered this question. Uh, DAP score was recommended for this 30 month post first year, but uh, I don't see a reason why we cannot calculate it. It is just that it is not studied in that per se. So its applicability is still in question. It may be valid, we just don't know that answer. Uh, Gauri ma'am, your comments and after that we'll come to Shankar sir. Thank you sir, thank you for uh, giving me the opportunity. I had two things to say uh, about, uh, maybe not exactly with this case, uh, but uh, relating to beta blockers. Um, one uh, is that, uh, you know, I have seen patients in my clinic post, they have, uh, as a physician, I see them as a follow-up when they have uh, undergone, uh, you know, a, a, a stenting or they have seen the cardiologist and then they come for follow-up many times to the local clinic where the physician could be. And a um, few things that they come up, uh, which we have seen is extreme fatigue as, as one of the symptoms, uh, very common. Um, uh, the other is... Uh, uh, uric acid levels, you know, um, I, I'm not sure what happened with this particular patient, uh, renal parameters seem to be normal, but I think that is something I have seen um, going high. And third is not as much talked about definitely erectile dysfunction. Um, and um, 
um, so there has been a lot of talk about depression along with beta blockers, but not really. So a lot of meta-analysis say that it is really not associated. But then um, a lot of, uh, especially men between the age of say 45 to 60, where they have undergone, you know, who have been on beta blockers post, um, um, post tenting or any event, right? Cardiac event. Uh, they... Um, tend to uh, show symptoms which could be uh, which could be depressive symptoms which could be either because of the fatigue or because of erectile dysfunction in in a in indian culture because it's not spoken about as much but this is some this is a problem with beta blocker that i see very commonly when prescribed in men in this age group um and i just wanted to put it out there because i don't know how many patients talk about it or or how that discussion happens um you know when they come for follow ups um so that was one uh, i wanted to bring to light uh, two is um has there been a upward trend of movement of the hba1c itself though here it seems 5.9 i have also seen uh, as as you mentioned uh, dr anup that uh, metabolic, you know, um, there, there's a lot of these changes that can be seen. And I have seen um, rise in HbA1c, uh, you know, over like years of the patient being on a beta blocker, you know, over a period of time. Now, is it because of the beta blocker itself or because of many other factors around it, which could be also adding to the fact, that, you know, sugars then later on present, you know, which was not there before. So these are the few things that I have seen Um with regard to beta blocker otherwise i concur whatever the discussion that has happened uh, uh, otherwise ma'am all your points are absolutely spot on and i will share my uh, comments a little bit but let us hear from dr shankar first shankar sir uh, good evening uh, regarding the uh, smoking uh, we in the earlier huddle sessions we have discussed uh, 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 so the timeline when what happens when uh, we quit smoking with, uh, in a chain smoker within 20 minutes uh, his heart rate and blood pressure drops and within uh, 24 hours is a chance of uh, uh, heart attack also decrease and uh, after one year the risk of heart disease drops to half that of a non-smoker and uh, over a period of 15 years is almost uh, the risk of heart disease is that of a non-smoker. So, 15 years, uh, what uh, Dr. Nagula Praveen told is, uh, is correct. Uh, we can give uh, the reference also regarding this. And the uh, second point, see, everybody is uh, talking about the beta blocker uh, stoppage, but uh, so the beta blockers should not be stopped abruptly, uh, that everybody knows about it. But uh, what is the experience of the audience, uh, the August audience regarding this uh, st stopping beta blockers abruptly? Because uh, in the literature, it is told that uh, the sudden surge in the sympathetic activity and the precipitation of the angina uh, in case in, in uh, CAD patients. So sudden uh, abrupt stoppage of uh, beta blockers is not advised. If at all, if you want to reduce it uh, slowly, we can reduce it uh, from 50 to 25. We can make because uh, his blood pressure is 106 by 64. So we can reduce both the drugs like ARB and BB beta blocker 
to the half the dose. Uh, I will wait for the opinion of Dr. Somaraju sir. His vast experience. Thank you, Shankar sir. I'll just add two two comments and then we will go to Somaraju sir for his opinion. So, um, Gauri ma'am, your points were absolutely well taken. Uh, beta blocker has been implicated with uh, this chronic fatigue syndrome and many patients they actually learn to live with it. This is particularly problematic in middle-aged adults and uh, also the erectile dysfunction and whatnot you mentioned. Uh, I think we all kind of tend to see that, but it is just that cardiology visits are so much at times focused on cardiology that uh, these things, they do get missed. So by no means, I want to discount beta blockers. They are great drugs. And in fact, in cardiovascular space, they have really transformed how we treat patients. It has increased our comfort level in how we prescribe beta blocker. And I believe it is because of this extra comfort. Sometimes we tend to uh, over jealously uh, prescribe this even in those patients where other drugs uh, may probably do an equally good job. And uh, Shankar sir, I, I agree with you, beta blocker uh, withdrawal is a real thing, particularly if somebody is on beta blocker for quite some time, then it's a real problem. Uh, this particularly happens very prominently in uh, hydrophilic beta blockers like etinolol, but even lipophilic beta blockers, we see it very commonly. And uh, we tend to reduce beta blockers slowly in those patients who have been on uh, chronic use. I will tell you what I did with this patient myself, and then uh, we'll go to Somaraju sir for his opinion. So I stopped this Nicorandil. I think that was a general consensus amongst all the discussants today. I reduced his metoprolol to 25 milligrams once a day with the intention to stop it after a month, which I told him that you only take it for a month send me your vitals and I'll tell you to stop it later on. I continued his uh, telmisartan, but I reduced it to 20 milligrams. And my intention was to continue telmisartan for quite some time. And only when I would see how his blood pressure would respond to all these things, because I didn't want him to get into a hypertensive episode. And only when I was okay with his blood pressure, I would either drop telmisartan or continue 20 milligrams for some time, depending upon how his blood pressure would do. I did continue his Rosuwa Gold 20 milligrams and I shared with you my rationale of doing it. I continued 20, I did not increase it to 40 because I thought uh, 62 was a good enough number for him. And I continued dual antiplatelet, not particularly because there is an indication for dual antiplatelet, but because of the learning I got from the very beginning that uh, uh, quality control of drugs are a big problem for us. So if I give him two drugs, I at least know he's getting at least one, if not two. So I know at least he's getting some antiplatelet agent. So it is more of a little bit uh, of more pragmatic way of looking at it, not a scientific way of looking at it. But I did continue his, uh, his uh, uh, fixed dose combination of rosuvastatin and two antiplatelets, 25 milligrams of metoprolol and 25 milligrams of and 20 milligrams of telmisartan. That's what I did with the intention to stop metoprolol after a month. So let us see what Somaraju sir has to uh, share his thoughts and then we can continue our discussion for about five, seven more minutes. Somaraju sir. Thank you, Anu, and um, good evening to everybody. And <clears throat> so number one, uh, uh, I, uh, I just want to ask, uh, was there a family history of diabetes in this patient? Sir, there was no family history of diabetes. Okay, if there is no family history of diabetes, it's important to know. And second thing is, uh, 
not a word is spoken about him as a person uh, what does he do and uh, what is his physical activity what is his work and work environment do you think these things matter yes sir these things matter it is just that we wanted to limit our discussion uh, no no nothing yes. there is nothing like the person centered medicine versus disease centered medicine please you have to come out of it uh, i leave it at that uh, keep it to yourself and uh, let us not discuss more about it having said that uh, uh, i agree with uh, smoking cessation the risk goes on coming down from the day you stop smoking but it takes 15 years by the end of 15 years this person is as if he never smoked uh that is the data available actually and uh, second thing is uh, he, he when he had the first uh, uh, acute coronary syndrome he was a young active smoker and his coronary anatomy restored coronary artery uh, anatomy is important to know that would decide as to what we continue how much we continue etc whether if there is no family of diabetes the diabetes may have been contributed more likely by statins than small dose of beta blocker or combination both of them could have contributed keep that in mind and uh, uh, i i think uh, uh, overall to try to young active smoker if the uh, lesion at that time was a thrombus dominantly and rest of the coronaries were otherwise normal to continue antiplatelets forever uh, probably was not a right decision and uh, this diabetes uh, um, possibly is related to his lifestyle or uh, the drugs he was taking etc but i like to know his physical somebody said there no need to do functional testing but somebody who is physically active regularly exercising versus somebody who is physically inactive never exercises they are different the indications for functional testing etc are different in them thank you sir one question that we wanted uh, your opinion on is this uh, fixed dose combination uh, when when we don't have data we rely upon experience what is your thought about fixed dose uh, do you do you personally think that of the available fixed dose combinations they work less efficiently than the individual components Uh, thank you for asking that there are two components to it i don't i never prescribe it myself if somebody already prescribed they are continuing uh, sometimes we, i continue sometimes we change and uh, the uh, absorption of the drugs uh, in fixed dose combination is doubtful and uh, bioavailability is uh, already there were some publications already available that uh, it's not up to the mark secondly this fixed dose combination also produce significant acid peptic symptoms when you divide them they do well actually into separate drugs thank you thank you so much sir uh gauri ma'am you have something to add i have just 30 seconds with terms with with regards to fig fig drug doses and this is a normal gp problem that we have there are two reasons why patients come back and they say that ma'am there are too many medicines that i am taking can you reduce the number of pills you know this is one question which comes very often in the clinic the second thing that comes is um ma'am this is becoming too expensive 
when there are too many when you do single drug uh, the cost goes high and that's what and and sometimes these are the two reasons why we at times choose to do combination medicines you know uh, ideally i i do not like to combine but there are these two reasons very commonly that patients come forward and say uh, which then you have to think about the patient and then maybe take that step at times just wanted to add that thank you so much ma'am in fact uh, i got training in a in a situation where fixed dose combinations were never a part of prescription but uh, over the years i have actually gone through what is what is the evolving knowledge uh, both in the indian as well as in the western literature and european countries as well as uh, us uh, and india it's pretty much established that uh, there is a certain inclination towards fixed dose combination quality control is a separate issue altogether but there is certainly an inclination towards fixed dose combination in fact there is data uh in the hypertension world showing that fixed dose combinations are more efficacious than the same drugs given independently and of course the only way you can explain is compliance nothing else there is no reason why fixed dose combination will actually work better than taking two two different tablets together and the only way you can explain it is compliance there is actually european da data about it we have been using it in india for quite some time WHO is advocating it using in developing countries like Africa and what not and in the hypertension world there are actually guidelines which are supporting use of a uh, fixed dose combination over individual drugs in these patient subset uh, the risks have been already described which is uh, the bioavailability of taking these many drugs together how they are bounded together in a single pill their uh, relation with uh, gastritis symptoms because now you are taking multiple drugs at the same time so all of these they have been described but i believe the benefits that gauri ma'am mentioned and what uh, uh, the guidelines are also mentioning in terms of compliance cost and what not that also have to be taken into account and the overall result becomes so complex that we often have to put our own individual judgment when we are dealing with uh, these patients that is why i told you like what i do and most of my colleagues do which is after a index procedure when we know the medication are very critical there uh, we tend to give individual drugs as compared to uh, people who are in the remote uh, who had a remote event there we are far more comfortable giving a fixed dose combination even if there is a quality control issue the other thing what also i think needs to be brought out when we talk about quality control is uh, sometimes these tablets not dissolving in the stomach or in the gut and there are at times where patients they do come to us reporting that they are actually excreting uh, a solid tablet solid pills in their stool it is important in fact it is it is uh, embarrassing but it is important for us to know which of these tablets are being excreted in the stool because if let's say you did an angioplasty in a patient 2 weeks back and if that patient is excreting uh, ticagrelor as their tablet in the stool that means effectively there is no ticagrelor going into the body and these patients are unnecessarily at higher risk or highest risk of um, uh, stent thrombosis so that that is also something which we should regard particularly with the fixed dose combination because there if one tablet does not dissolve then that means effectively patient is not getting two or three whatever that combination of polypill is uh the patient will be devoid of that medication so very complex issue and i wish we had better answers for this
uh, and we have to use our own thought process. Samaraju sir mentioned about uh, his index angiogram. Sir, I didn't have his CD with me, but I had his report. And the report mentioned all the other arteries being normal. Now, whenever somebody mentions normal in the arteries, I always take it with a pinch of salt. I actually want to see the angiogram myself because many of the times mild diseases are reported as normal. Uh, these are important for us to know because we know that the, these mild disease may progress in the future. Unfortunately, in this case, I only had the access to report, not the angiogram per se. And this is also important for our physician colleagues that whenever you are talking about de-escalating antiplatelet therapy, uh, a word with the cardiologist becomes very important because it is not just about the duration of the event. It is also related to what kind of stent was placed, what size was it placed, where was it placed, what was the rest of the anatomy. Uh, all of these, they do help us determine whether the patient should be on long-term dual antiplatelet or not. So if you plan to de-escalate uh, an antiplatelet agent, uh, just just giving a call or looking into uh, or or looking into the old cardiology recommendation may not may be a good good place to start with. So I think with this uh, we can pause our today's discussion unless somebody has got any particular questions. Uh, maybe we can pause for just a few seconds. If somebody has any question, they can put up. And Gauri ma'am, thank you. You put in that uh, uh, PDF link on our chat box regarding list of banned FDC by uh, CDSCO. I just want to add, I have been to this, I have seen this list many times before. I just want to add what is happening with this list. You know, the drugs which are banned in this list are actually the kind of FDCs which should not exist to begin with. Like there are drugs, there are FDCs in this list, which has got a PPI combined with a NSAID. And you would think that why would there be a polypill existing with a pantoprazole and a ibuprofen. And uh, some company guy must have thought that ibuprofen may cause uh, gastritis, so might well put a PPI uh, so that one pill will do both the job. That, that marketing guy probably didn't, didn't realize that one of the drug needs to be taken before food and one of the drug needs to be taken after food. So how can you have a polypill with that kind of combination? So CDSU actually banned a lot of these combinations which are obviously, which of which should not exist. Not that they have a quality control problem, they just should not exist. Amongst the existing FDCs, what kind of quality we have got, what kind of dissolution parameters they pass through, we have absolutely no idea. And if anybody is interested, they can go back and look into our uh, drug quality control uh, hurdle discussion that we had in the very early phase. It's in a two-part series. The first part, we talk more clinical, where Dr. Harry is doing most of the talking. He's a cardiologist from Cleveland. And in the second part, we discuss with uh, Dinesh Thakur. He is uh, he's a whistleblower, essentially. He just had been a part of Ranbaxy scientific team. And later on, he was the whistleblower for it. So he talks about the quality control and what we do and all this. So with that, I would like to conclude, unless we have any uh, more uh, discussion points. Pranit, your closing comments about today's discussion? Yeah, fairly simple uh, topic uh, to begin with, but there's a lot to unpack in this uh, fairly simple day-to-day uh, -day clinical case, if I have to say. And uh, uh, the point that earlier mentioned that rather than just looking at uh, whether the patient is taking the so-called set of guideline-directed medical therapy, 
it is worth uh, paying attention and sometimes pausing and seeing whether the drugs that we are prescribing over the years is it actually doing any harm or benefit and when there is this so called risk benefit analysis that need to be done taking the patient's requirements into consideration probably talking to him and educating about uh, the risk and benefits of these drugs uh, probably is vital and uh, according to the requirements we may be um, okay taking a careful call on deescalating the therapy uh, provided the patient is under close follow up and when you think that it is not so okay it is fine to play safe and continue the therapy without uh, uh, being guilty about having an event um, now that you have deescalated therapy so i think uh, each and every decision has to be individualized and uh, taking patient into consideration is always uh crucial in when we make these decisions and a uh, very uh, valid discussion was that was brought up in terms of long term usage of beta blockers statins um, ras blockers etc and i think uh, that was an excellent discussion that we had and thank you pranit and thank you everyone for attending today's discussion and participating with your thoughts we'll see you all next wednesday with a new topic if you do have a topic that you think we should be discussing in our future huddle please share with us on the whatsapp group and we'll try to include it in our future discussion thank you all again for your uh, an hour of time more than an hour of time we'll see you next wednesday good night